Welcome to Swansea Cyber Law and Security Podcast. I'm Sarah Kuchaya, doctoral researcher at Swansea University. Hello, I'm Patrick Bishop. I'm a senior lecturer in law also at Swansea University. As always, we are here to discuss the cyber law and security news of the last month, month and a bit actually this time. And today we're joined by a special guest again. We've been very lucky in the past couple of episodes and today I think we're most lucky because we have Amy Louise Watkin on the line. Um, hello, Amy Louise. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. So, Amy Louise is a doctoral researcher here at the law school as well, and her research is into social media regulation, uh, particularly in the context of uh, extreme and terrorist content. So, one of the stories we have today it relates to uh, content regulation. So, we thought we'd invite her on to talk about that. I should also say that the views expressed on this podcast do not represent those of our employers, our research partners, or our sponsors. Uh, so, welcome back. It's the, is it the eighth episode or the ninth episode? We go through this every time, don't we? <laughs> every time. <laughs> I think it's eighth. I think it's the ninth. Ninth, okay. Okay, anyway, eight and a half, eight and three quarters, Harry Potter reference. <laughs> Um, and we've had uh, about nine plays in the past 24 hours. We've got, in total, we've, we've passed the 1,000 mark. So 1,252 plays in total, which is not bad. Still um, haven't quite broken the internet yet, have we? <laughs> not quite. We're getting there. We're getting there. And this month, we have three topics to discuss. So we're going to be talking about content regulation. Like I said, there was a... Channel 4 documentary uh, here in the UK about Facebook's content review process. Uh, it was called Inside Facebook, Secrets of the Social Network. And it was one of the typical Channel 4 uh, documentaries where they go in undercover and they, they cause all sorts of mischief. Uh, so be, that'd be a good one to talk about. Then we will talk about the National Cybersecurity Centre's report on threats to the legal sector. That's our second story. And finally, we will talk a little bit about London's new fraud and cybercrime court, which we had mentioned back in October, and it was back in the news this month. Okay, shall we start with the first topic? Why not? Let's go. Okay, wicked. So, inside Facebook, secrets of the social network. So, Dispatches, that's a, a, a documentary series on Channel 4, they, they release one, I think it's every week mm. or every couple of weeks, perhaps. Um, so they made this documentary called Inside Facebook, and uh, it's still available on Catch Up, I think, for for another 10 days, perhaps. Ten, yeah, so obviously it's 6th of August recording this, so... Uh, up to the 16th, 17th of August, right. still available. Yes, depending yeah. on how long it takes us to uh, edit to edit this <laughs> podcast, you know, <laughs> how many silly things we say that need editing out. Anyway, you'll still have some time to watch it if you're within the UK, um, uh, within the UK, because mm. of course outside the UK you won't be able to get it on on the internet. So what happened was an undercover uh, reporter from Channel 4 went into a company called CPL Resources, a company based in Dublin, to whom Facebook has outsourced some of their content moderation. So 
in a nutshell, as you'd expect, this company's function was to review content against communi- Facebook community guidelines. And the, when they did that, one of three things happen. Either they ignore ignore it, so they've reviewed it, they, they find that it doesn't contravene community guidelines and they, they ignore it. Um, they delete the content or they mark it as disturbing. When it's marked as, as disturbing, I think... I'm not entirely sure actually well, what happens. But... There's a warning at the beginning of the video. So right. the user has to click to say that they there yeah. might be offensive or violent content. And I think under 18s are not supposed to have access to that. Right, um, right. So if someone... Uh, if they registered as a 14-year-old Facebook, I, I, I right. presume it would be blocked. Okay, right. So in the process of... The docu- well, during the documentary, a number of issues were identified and were highlighted. Most of it was about the actual implementation of the community standards. So uh, quite a number of issues were identified with the training of the, mm. of the, the reviewers in this particular company. And, and that meant that they weren't implementing the guidelines consistently. Yeah. There was also, uh, at one point, an issue with volume of, of the work mm. and waiting lists of uh, material that needed reviewing that was just sat there waiting. And throughout, I guess, the the documentary highlighted a potential <laughs> tension between the financial gain mm. which companies like Facebook may, uh, uh, may get from content that is disturbing and extreme because it draws attention and it it results in clicks and in in yeah. view in views and the you know their responsibility to review and and maintain a mm. platform that that is sort of safe and uh, and fair to the users and you know anyway so so these were the three main areas which i thought they identified so yeah, any any thoughts at this point? Yeah. Um, no, well, one it was a very interesting documentary, very <laughs> useful. I'm going to see if I can download in some permanent form so I can use it for my teacher next year. Um, I think what really struck out was that these moderators have this three and a half weeks training mm-hmm. to deal with very complex guidelines, open to interpretation, and then they they're let loose on the on the platform to to moderate the material. So I think that's what struck out, is how little training these people have. Mm-hmm. And there was one section in there as well, because Facebook has recently changed their community guidelines. There was even a supervisor there who wasn't sure what to do with a particular video because he wasn't sure how the guidelines should be um, interpreted. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's really eye-opening. I think what really struck out me as well is a, a female, exposed female nipple, automatic delete no mm-hmm. question about it and then some videos of violence two young girls fighting uh, a man uh, attacking a, a small child and they were marked as marked as disturbing so they were still available mm-hmm. still could be watched so there was some eye-opening aspects to it in in that sense yeah yeah i mean obviously the documentary was highlighting all of the times it went wrong yeah, so there is there is that. Uh, this is in the context of a lot of reviews and 
the ones we discuss is where where the review process doesn't work. Yeah, <laughs> which is well, it know, wouldn't have, but still, it wouldn't be much of a documentary if no. it was. <laughs> this is how perfectly everything goes in Facebook. Yeah. So that's to you know we always have to take it with that caveat, and yeah. know, they, they will focus on the the negative aspects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, on the the content side, one of the things that jumps out is just the range of content as well or the range of things that they have to yeah consider when they're doing these reviews it's it's quite a big job <laughs> it's an enormous job um i don't know if you read uh, monica becker she is um global policy manager i think or vice president of global policy and she wrote a blog saying that they have obviously billions of users on the platform every day and that these posts are created in dozens of languages and in all different formats, text, image, video, live stream. And then they've got to simultaneously regulate for terrorism, hate speech, suicide, self-harm, animal cruelty, sexual exploitation, and others. And they must quickly and accurately identify context and whether or not it will inspire action or violence or whatever. And that also certain issues are legal in some countries and then not in others. And then they're trying really hard to develop um, artificial intelligence technology and a lot of it is only good for one kind of content at a time like it's really good for identifying the content in Im- images but not so much in videos and text mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so they have like all of those problems to deal with plus some that I probably missed <laughs> yeah 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 I mean th- th- that's the thing <sighs> on one hand <laughs> right um, and this kind of links in with one one of the main thoughts I had when I was when I was watching this I think there's no question that the documentary highlighted some failures in the training and the implementation of the guidelines and that you know that's that's true um uh, well at least you know in my view I think Mm. particularly you know there were there were moments where the documentary makers went back to Facebook to say you know, the trainers said this wasn't mm. against community guidelines and then Facebook says, no, hang on a minute, that yeah. is against community guidelines. So there was obviously an issue there of the implementation and how the outsourcing works. Right. I think we need to remember that content moderator jobs aren't really comparable to anything else and we haven't really had to do this with any other kind of media and certainly not on this scale. So really they are just figuring it out for the first time. So I, I understand that obviously it's not acceptable some of the mistakes that they were making, but but it is really something that is happening for the first time. Mm. And I'd also who, where it's natural to, you know, make errors. And I'd also say as well from Facebook's perspective, the very difficult role to play. If they are too stringent in their takedown practices, then they'll be accused of censorship, and uh, you know, going against the ethos of the, the Facebook why it was started. If they leave too many things up, then they'll be linked with encouraging violence, self-harm, etc. So they're trying to find that balance between those mm. two things. And then obviously they will never please everyone all of the time. Well, that's true, yeah. And, and, and nothing like it. just move to other platforms yeah. who are being run by people who are less lenient, perhaps. Mm. Um, but also I think that it's um, important that as well. Uh, content moderation, moderation is happening for the first time and I don't think it's been around long enough for us to fully investigate the psychological processes and effects 
that these people have doing this job and possible coping mechanisms that come into play when they're trying to do this job. Um, it's obviously super repetitive mm-hmm. and desensitization is bound to happen. And um, we probably don't really understand that, you know, they might see something that's really terrible, but then they see all these other things that are even worse. And then that first thing they saw that was terrible, now, when they compare it to other things, may not seem as bad. Whereas we're watching that show for the first time and we're seeing content mm-hmm. like that that yeah. we don't have to see every day. So we think that's terrible, but, you know, they've become really desensitized. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of issues there that we still need to work out because mm-hmm. this is all happening for the first time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you never know, in, in years to come, there might be specialist degree courses on content <laughs> moderation, yeah, because it's obviously a growing sector, and AI can only do so much. I think we've talked about in the past that there's fairly useful software that looks at photographs and can pick up certain aspects of a photograph, but it's very difficult to do that with, with video. Yeah. And even then, think- there has to be some human, human input somewhere. Because obviously the, the technology is never infallible. Yeah. The documentary also didn't mention how many of the moderators the reporter was working with. If it was the same, you know, two or three all the time, because you can recognise them through the video, then that may not necessarily represent all the employees across the whole organisation. Yeah. Um, it could have been the same few. And it's also unknown because this is quite a private and secretive industry, it's unknown that what the sort of intercoder reliability is between them. Yeah. You know, I wonder if you give 100 moderators the same 100 content posts and see if they if they code them the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be an interesting... But I think what we could discuss is not... Obviously, there's individual moderators working there and some may or may not have done their job as well as they, they could have. But I think if you go back to the model that Facebook uses, which is essentially a business based on advertising revenue, I think the point was made early on in the video that the controversial videos, they're the ones that get shared a lot. They're the ones that generate interest on the platform. And obviously, the more time people spend on the platform, the more clicks there are and advertising, etc. So I think almost the model has in built into it that there's this tendency to leave controversial stuff up there mm. because that's what generates the interest in the site. So yeah, I think there's something yeah. about the model of Facebook yeah. use yeah. which would naturally lend itself to um, less censorship, less regulation. Yeah, so, so perhaps the issue of free speech, which is usually uh, the justification for leniency, perhaps that's not the full story. But I think regardless of the motivation for being, uh, for, for, for the default being not taking mm. it down, regardless of that justification, I think the, there's a couple of things that, that I think are much bigger problems than, than Facebook itself. I think the tech companies are <laughs> very convenient scapegoats as well mm. because i mean we've talked about this on the podcast in yeah. relation to a number of things but they are performing a regulatory function in terms of what is what is legal and illegal content really and and because they are in what on one hand it needs to be there needs to be fairness in this mm. process because they 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 are performing this role regardless of whether or not it is their responsibility. Mm. 
But then but it's not just that role, really. I mean, it's the role of, you know, psychologists when you saw the suicide and self-harm content. It's not just yeah. really regulators, you know, they were expected to send out those checkpoints. I mean, where does it end then? Like, if you add that onto it, if you take every every type of content, they're going to be playing not just regulations, but, but even more so than that. Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess the question is, all of these expectations of these companies, are they, in a way, distracting from the responsible the, the statutory responsibilities mm-hmm. of other government organisations yeah. and 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 the government really uh, generally, uh, and is is this because it, it's a common it's a common theme I think in public policy to push the responsibility away from the state, yeah, and in many ways that means that then. The bodies that should be accountable mm. for certain things are no longer accountable yeah. for certain things because they couldn't possibly do it. You know, only Facebook can do it, uh, or only other companies can do it. Um, I don't know. I think it's just worth keeping in mind. You know, who, who, in terms of content regulation, and and also in terms of like you said, like Amy Louise said about uh, the responsibility towards people with mental health issues or who are self-harming or who are suicidal i mean ultimately whose responsibility it is to respond to yeah. those needs right um well i think it depends on what we want to define facebook as you know i think it was jamie bartlett mentioned that in this book people versus tech like do we do we see it as a media outlet do we see it as an online advertiser like a social media platform is it an artificial intelligence company or is it national security institution was it part of law enforcement are they professional psychologists you know (laughs) (laughs) it goes on and on and on and i'm sure it's something that everyone's going to disagree on and you know how can they possibly be successful if we can't even agree what they are and what they're supposed to do and what the purpose is yeah and i'm sure this isn't what they intended when they first set out either you know (laughs) and also as well i think the bottom line is is we talk about, we can be distracted by talking about these issues of censorship and freedom of speech, etc. But first of all, Facebook's just a mirror held up to society. So sometimes policymakers can get distracted by talking about Facebook and social media and then forget about the real problem. So the more fundamental problem is not mm. that Facebook shows images of self-harm possibly, is that people engage in self-harm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think policymakers can get caught up with the Facebook aspect of yeah. it and actually forget about, or at least trying to tackle the root problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I've been reading Jamie Butler's new book as well. Uh, he very kindly advertised it on Twitter last week because uh, <laughs> there was a promotion on. Uh, Amazon was selling it for the kindle edition right. at one at like two pound 99 or okay. something so but he was, oh, i got it on google books for 199 oh, <laughs> 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 um anyway <laughs> so i got my copy last week and uh he i mean the, the the theme of the book i haven't got through the whole thing but um he he talks a lot more about issues of uh disinformation and fake news mm. that's also been debated quite a lot particularly since the Trump election uh, and and quite often the content regulation aspect is conflated with that as well to what extent is 
are platforms like Facebook able to identify what is fake news and mm. deal with it accordingly? And perhaps on that, you know, where content isn't illegal, it's just rubbish. I think there it's even harder yeah. for me to make the case that they should be actively taking this down mm. because I don't know to what extent it is their responsibility. Perhaps it is. I'm not sure. I haven't made my my mind up on this. But the point that Jamie Bartlett makes uh, uh, very strongly is that there are there are problems within the, the where where our democratic systems that our democratic systems haven't evolved to exist within the the digital yeah. world, basically. Yeah. And and so. The, the the processes of democracy which are based on deliberation and and sort of debate yeah. and inform, marketplace of ideas debate. and yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and all of that is eclipsed in the immediacy of of social media and and mass well mass. it's it's a theme we've mentioned so many times you know we've often talked about the law and it, the analogies often used the technology is the hair, the law is the tortoise. The law is always trying to catch <laughs> yeah. up with the technology. And it's the same thing here in the sense that our democratic system hasn't yet evolved to deal with social media and, and you know dissemination of information online. It hasn't quite caught up yet. Um, mm. Maybe it never will, but yeah. that's, that's the problem that we always have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. As we always say, I don't know what the solution is. <laughs> <laughs> if you did, I think, uh, you know, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where yeah, I was going yeah, with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be living on a private island in the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, is there anything either of you would like to add in relation to this story? No. No, I don't think so. It's definitely interesting anyway. It's worth a, worth a watch. Not that we sponsored by Channel 4. No. <laughs> or anyone or come anyone. to that. Yeah. No, this is a voluntary <laughs> enterprise with uh, no, no funds required. No. Although, you know, we are open to the idea of sponsorship. Yeah. <laughs> Just put yeah. that out there. <laughs> if you want to reach our army of 1,200... <laughs> <laughs> regular <Yeah>. listeners uh, <laughs> great um okay did you want to say something sorry no no that's fine yeah um, well i don't i don't know we see because you can edit this out but I, what we haven't mentioned is in terms of the content is the the extreme right yeah and their relationship yeah. with yeah. yeah with facebook i thought thought that was interesting um, oh, there seems to be at least this is how the documentary portrayed it some sort of bias towards the far right and, mm. and giving them more of a platform than they might otherwise have yeah I think uh, Amy Louise will uh, will have something, something to, to say, say on, on that this. yeah I thought she might <laughs> <laughs> well, well yeah um, obviously it wasn't so good that they were given you know eight or nine chances when they were only supposed to be given five but they were removed, and now they've just moved elsewhere. Um, Britain first. They're on Gab now. Don't know if anyone knows about Gab. Um, I only know about um, Gab because because I know you. 
It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because in some part of me thinks, well, give them a platform, mm. and then their their beliefs, their ideas will be exposed for what they are. Mm. Um, you know, I always think of the non-online example, but the Nick Griffin example on Question Time mm-hmm. it was a hugely controversial decision at the time to give the leader of the BMP a platform on national television, but the BBC. Stuck with that decision, and he revealed himself for what he was. And then after that, <laughs> yeah. the BMP support dropped drastically. So again, it's a difficult one because I think there is mm. an element of well, if you expose these people's views, yeah, um, then it's best for it to be there in the open rather than driving them to maybe to you know darker recesses yeah. of the yeah. of the internet. Yeah. I read a, a blog last week. I can't remember who it was by, but it was on a blog or a site called Crooked Media and they they comment a lot on media related stuff and anyway and they the the point they were making was that in many ways Facebook and other companies they have been at the other end of a campaign particularly in the US uh, from a a particular ideological group that that made made it constantly repeated the mantra that they were being uh, they were being censored on mm. Facebook yeah. and, and other platforms and and in many ways that negative publicity perhaps has led to a more lenient kind of, or or perhaps yeah. a more careful yeah. <laughs> consideration of kind of right wing yeah content and and pages yeah. for that reason uh, so, and and this particular blog post, post was making the case that that was very much intentional. On that was very much a strategic on the part on of the, the right part of the right yeah. of of these particular pressure groups yeah. to to kind of push Facebook and others. Uh, well, we've seen an example recently with Tommy. I can't remember his surname. Tommy Robinson. Tommy Robinson, who was convicted and sentenced to um, in prison for contempt of court. For talking about a live case outside the court, and you know he's treating it now as if he's some sort of martyr that he's been censored and he's the right to speak about these issues, even though we've had centuries of law relating to contempt of court and what you can and cannot say with an ongoing trial. Mm-hmm. But he's so he's playing that he's dropped into that position of well, I'm a martyr, I'm being censored or whatever. Um, so it's interesting, you know, that they are treating it as a deliberate tactic. Mm-hmm. And to play the martyrdom card in the hope then that the you know the media in all its forms will go the other way and give them more exposure than would otherwise have been the case. 
Yep. <laughs> Mind you, on the other side of the fence, people are saying exactly the same thing, right? Like, you know, all of all of the left wingers also say that the media disadvantages them and blah blah yeah. blah. So it's, yeah. a, it's an ongoing. Uh, yeah. From, from well, I think in some sense, if it's a sign of a healthy media, if they please no one, yeah. If if one one ideology, you know, one particular viewpoint is entirely happy with the way they're treated in the media, you think, well, there's something wrong here because, yeah, you know, that's not how it should be. So in some ways, it's a comforting yeah. sign that no one's really happy with it. Yeah, there we are. This is, you know, this is a optimistic, nice, optimistic positive, way to end. <laughs> positive place to leave the story. Excellent. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, second topic then. So we've got the National Cybersecurity Centre. This is a... Is it MI5 or MI6? GCHQ. Part of GCHQ. Part of it. There we are. So they have put out a report on threats to the legal sector. So I thought that might be a good one to discuss. In this report, they quote a PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, report from last year, which states that 60% of the law firms that they surveyed, I'm guessing, I haven't looked at the, the original report, but I'm guessing it's a survey, said that they had had an information security incident in the past year. And also the Solicitors Regulation Authority has reported over uh, 11 million pounds of client money being stolen as a result of cybercrime in in the year ending 2017. So this highlights that cybercrime, cybersecurity is is an area of concern to legal firms. And Um, I think legal firms, as the report says, are quite susceptible to these sorts of attacks. Yeah. They handle a lot of money, go through yeah. their accounts on behalf They're of their high clients. High value targets. High, yeah. yeah. They've got access to, oh, they'll hold a lot of sensitive data about individuals, etc. So they would seem to be a natural target for a, a cyber criminal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they identify the four most significant cyber threats against law firms. And I think there's going to be no surprises here. So number one... Phishing. <laughs> number two, data breaches. Number three, ransomware. And number four, supply chain compromise. So phishing, we know, we all know what that is. You know, social engineering, you've got your phishing emails. Yeah. You also have variants. You've got spear phishing. Spear phishing. Yeah. Uh, so we're, spear phishing is where an individual is targeted. Particularly targeted, yeah. yeah. Rather than this blanket, send an email to 100,000 yeah. people, spear phishing is more targeted and nuanced yeah yeah data breaches quite often uh if you look at the the big stories out there i mean there are situations where a data breach comes back to a vulnerability say take the the talk talk hack yeah. that was clearly a vulnerability in the system that led to that but uh only last week i think or maybe two weeks back there were there were some news stories about Perhaps I shouldn't be mentioning this, actually, but I'm too, too late, too late now. <laughs> um, the the hacking of uh, the uh, Democrats in the previous election uh, in the US. Uh, so it turns out that it was it was um, it was actually the result of the they they've they've traced it back to an instance of social engineering against one of 
Hillary Clinton's um, age, whatever, someone in her, in her close, close, right. fairly close to her, and that's how, uh, and that's how it whole the whole thing started. Oh, okay. So it wasn't uh, a technical hack. Uh, it may it may have become a technical hack maybe later. I'm not sure, mm. but the the origin of it was actually social engineering. Right. So. So data breaches quite often can be traced back to social engineering yeah. as well. Yeah, so ransomware when a uh, uh, piece of malware encrypts data and, and, and then they ask for money uh, for in, in return of the decry- decryption key. And then supply chain compromise, that's to do with, say, where companies may outsource things like cloud services mm. to keep their data and and it's it's there it's those companies that get breached or whatever and as a result uh, the the law firm is affected and, f- and 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 of course law firms quite often are in the supply chain of other companies yeah. as well so all of these things can result in other people also being hacked because yeah. there's going to be a lot of sensitive information held by law firms so no surprises in these top four. Um, the report has a number of recommendations on on how to mitigate against the risks of each of these. But in 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 general, what it says is that, especially for small firms, I think it's small firms they're they're mostly concerned with in this report. They they suggest that they should um, uh, look follow the small business guide that the, the national. Cyber Security Center has put together. They should join the CISP, which is the Cyber Security Information Sharing Partnership. So there's a CISP for the UK. There's also regional CISPs. So there is a CISP in Wales, which people can join if they're local to us. And the way to join, you have to be invited. So the best way to go about it is to go on the CISP's uh, website, find out who's who are one of the coordinators get in touch with them and then they will invite you they'll send you an invitation so you can join and also becoming cyber essentials accredited so the cyber essentials is a is a government scheme to to sort of cover the basics of cyber security and actually if you do that you have covered yourself for most things that tend to lead to one of these four cyber threats coming into fruition so it sounds simple, but it's effective. Like, yeah. I think if you do this basic stuff, you're covering yourself against most yeah. things. You mo- so. I mean, most advice is what you would call cyber common sense, isn't it? You know, yeah. Basic cyber security measures. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if, if, you, if you're sort of regularly interested in these sorts of things, which we are, it seems obvious. You know, if you're a, a you know an old school high street solicitors firm with two or three partners or whatever, yeah, it this stuff might be new to you, and so I think it's good that the advice is pitched to that sort of to summarize fairly basic level, but it, yeah. it's still good yeah. common sense advice. Yeah, yeah. Law firms need to work flexibly more right. and more so yeah. these days, and that means that they will they'll probably have documents in the cloud. They'll probably be using different devices to access those documents, blah, blah, blah. And there that increases massively like the potential for the surface of attack. Yeah. <laughs> as the cyber security people say. So it, it is it is very important. But at the same time, when I see things like, you know, this statistic, 
PricewaterhouseCoopers, 60% of law firms reported an information security incident. Well, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. an information security incident could be <coughs> anything yeah. from somebody has lost a USB stick yeah. with some information in it, and maybe the stick was encrypted, yeah. even, to a data breach. Yeah. So, you know, it's not surprising that it's 60% because it's it's such a catch-all. Yeah, if you really need to interrogate the statistics yeah. more closely, don't you, to find out exactly what that means and how yeah. serious they are, etc. Yeah. Um, so I'm also a bit sceptical of the... But but I think this report kind of strikes a good balance between scaremongering and yeah. <laughs> and giving good advice. Yeah. So I'd, I'd recommend a read. And that's it, I think, on that topic. You all happy? Yeah, I think we can move on. Cool. All right. So topic three, then. We have a new fraud and cyber c- crime court approved in London. Mm. <laughs> uh, so... This is, I quote from the press release, uh, the government press release. It's a new flagship court specifically designed to tackle cybercrime, fraud and economic crime. And it will reinforce the UK's reputation as world leading legal centre. This is what the Lord Chancellor will announce tonight. That was back at the beginning of July. <laughs> so it's been a while now. Um, but we, we discussed the proposal for this new court back in October when, when it had first come up. Um, and it will be funded by the City of London Corporation and Her Majesty's Courts and Tribunal Service. Uh, so it's a joint venture. And they're hoping it's going to be the second iconic court on Square Mile after mm, the Old Bailey. Bailey. So, I think what we should say as well, it's not a new court in the <laughs> sense of there's not a new division of the High Court or a new jurisdictional no. entity. No. It's just a new court in the sense of the physical building, Yeah, which will be very high tech, which will make the most of uh, you know, information technology to run the court etc. But it's not actually a new specific cybercrime or cyber court with new jurisdictional powers. Yeah. It's a shiny new building essentially. Yes. Um, which yes. I think is, it will be based in near Fleet Street, I think. Which used to be the centre of newspaper publishing in the UK. Okay. Uh, I think. But don't quote me on that. <laughs> well, I, I know want, it used to I be. Want. I know it used to be that you can quote me on it. You be in the centre of publishing in the UK. Okay. You don't quote me on the court actually being there. But I think it is or near to anyway. Uh, so this is expected to be completed by twenty twenty five. So it's going to take a while. Um, but when you look at the announcement, there is a big emphasis on London's role at the centre of corporate commercial business. Uh, so it's it's very much a court. It's it's a resource that the city of London is, sees as a requirement yeah. uh, to to kind of uh, facilitate. Well, I think in the announcement in note as well, a forty percent of all global corporate arbitrations use English law. Yeah. So I think it's it has a symbolic element to it. This is you know you know English law is still the go to law for most international transactions 
uh, right Just in the heart spite. of the financial capital, you know, and we're a global outlook in yes. sort of country. Despite the B word, which shall not be mentioned. Yes, yeah. yes that's true. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it is very focused on business and I don't think it will have much impact um, on the prosecutions or convictions for fraud and cybercrime mm. affecting, you know, the general public. Yeah. I, I, I don't think this is where the focus is here. So... And um, that's that's worth noting as well, because I do think that quite a lot of resource is going into cybersecurity. Um, but the extent to which the 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 general public, the the taxpayer <laughs> uh, sees a return on that investment is uh, is very indirect. I mean, obviously, yeah. if if businesses are safe and 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 kept safe that has an impact on the economy, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But in terms of the vast amounts of people who are reporting cybercrime and fraud, it, it you know, the impact yeah. is limited. But arguably, you, you could view it as the, the, the large-scale attacks on the big financial providers. They actually do more harm anyway, because, you, you know, most of us have some sort of pension. Yeah. That pension's, you know... Speak for yourself, hello. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Some people have pensions. Um, uh, you know, and that's invested uh, in these hedge funds and these big financial institutions, etc. So, you know, it's all, it's understandable that the focus will be on the, yes. the, the large-scale financial yeah. institutions rather than the small individual who happens to be defrauded. Not that I'm belittling that in any way. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of the overall picture of policy, then obviously it's natural that the government will focus on the yeah. the sort of top end of the chain, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. That's it, I think, for this month. We've done well. We, we're on 50 minutes, but... There's a lot to cut there's, out. There's quite a bit to cut out. Yeah. Um, so, not not that we said anything, you know, controversial. It's just we had a couple of uh, surprise interruptions two phone, phone calls on a visit yeah so there we are um the last thing to do is usually we i actually i forgot to tell amy lou about this bit we usually have a thing at the end where we which we call free advertising uh where we just share something with the audience that we feel may be of interest mm-hmm. <laughs> so patrick have you got any free advertising only I think, I'm not sure if we've mentioned this before, but we've got two new exciting postgraduate programmes in Swansea. Yes. Um, we've got an LLM, a Master of Laws in Law and Legal Tech. And we've got an MA, and correct me if I get the title wrong, because I usually do, in Cybercrime and Terrorism. Or Amy Lou would know. Is that the correct title? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Something along those lines, anyway. So I know it's late in the cycle. Um, these courses will be starting in end of September, early August. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are available. So if you go onto yeah. our website and you yeah. fancy a challenge, something yeah. new and exciting. And people can still apply. The, they the can app- still apply. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, they can so. apply almost any time up until the um, um, the start of the course. Yeah. Obviously, if you're an overseas student, it's a little more complicated because you need a, a visa and you need to issue what's called a CAS certificate. But certainly if you're a home EU, UK or EU student, then you can apply almost right the day before the course starts. So it's worth checking that out if you're interested in a new 
an exciting challenge. Fun. Well, I it's been we mentioned it already today, but um, uh, I'm gonna plug <laughs> Jamie Bartlett's new book oh. again. Um, it's called People versus Tech, and it's available on Google Books on on the, us- Very the usual very channel. <laughs> Uh, let me just see if it's still. Yeah, you can still get it. No, you were right. It was one ninety nine, not two ninety nine. You can still get it for one pound ninety nine. Uh, the Kindle edition uh, through Amazon at the moment. This is a a, a time limited offer, so I yeah I'd uh, I'd get involved with that. So that's one. The other thing that I'd mention is this is totally unrelated, but I've been watching the show on Amazon Prime. And it's amazing. It's called The Americans. Oh, The Spy. The Spy. Oh, that yeah. was around a while ago, that uh, was. Ah, right. I, yeah. I've only just come across it oh, and okay. I've been binge watching that. Yeah. Very It's very apposite at the moment, though, isn't it? It is. Two it Russians is. masquerading as American exactly, spies. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it has made me think about the whole Novichok poison yeah. thing um, in, in a different light. But anyway, so. The Americans definitely yeah. recommend that really good show. It's set in during the Cold War, so it's it's kind of a period yeah. uh, drama um, as well, which I I appreciate. You know, the old tech and the yeah. there's no mobile phones or anything. It's all you know pay phones and uh, um, yeah, it's great. So, um, would you like? Have you got any free ad advertising? Me? No. Yeah. <laughs> 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 cool. All right. So I think the last thing to say is thank you very much, Amy Louise, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) And to our listeners, thank you for joining us and for being patient with us because we've we've been in a very giggly mood today. And we shall see you next month, probably. Uh, Will you? Will you? Us? Yeah. (laughs) You'll hear us next month. (laughs) Bye. 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 Oh, wait there. Oh, I'm going to change my chair because you always complain it squeaks, don't you? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, hang on. <laughs> No, I'm all right I today. I need the gems. No, I made sure I went before we started. <laughs> um, okay, here we go. <clears throat> um, oh, yes, we have a phone call. And our caller is... Katie Vaughan. Morning. I'm in a minute. I'm in the middle of recording a podcast. <laughs> Don't say hello to the mic. Did you say it? Well, because it'll keep ringing if I don't. <laughs> no. Anyway, I've got to go. I'll give her a ring when I'm done. <laughs> she took the hand up on me. <laughs> Stroppy. <laughs> and things like. <laughs> now we've got a knock on the door. Come in. Um, ransomware, so malware that encrypts your data. Oh, not again. <laughs> I'll leave that one ring. I'm in demand today, obviously. You see, I'm sitting next to my phone. So if I was going to answer it, I would have answered it within the first two rings.
So I never understand why people keep the phone ringing when I'm sitting next to it. See, as if I've got to walk 100 yards across my office to pick sp- it up. Speaking as someone who often rings you yeah. <laughs> and who leaves it ring, <laughs> <laughs> my thought process is, oh, he's probably sat there and doesn't want to pick up. So if I keep ringing... <laughs> okay fair enough (laughs) um yeah anyway what was i talking about 